0: This is an Area Code Podcast.
1: You're listening to The Table of Malcontents, where Aaron Armstrong, Dave Schrader, and Barnabas Piper talk about the books they love and a few they really don't to help you be a better reader. Books and podcasts are always best with a great cup of coffee. That's why we've partnered with Ligaris Roasters to create the Table of Malcontents blend. And guys, it's delicious. A smooth Brazilian roast that will make your heart happy. Head over to LigarisRoasters.com to order a bag or 12 today. Hey everybody, welcome to a special episode of Table of Malcontents. I'm Aaron and with me today is just Barnabas. That's
0: why it's special. That's right. Because Dave's not here.
1: That's true, that's true. We can make cat cat jokes. 40 Dave,
0: Cat Lady Dave. All of the Daves
1: are absent. Yep. These are the Daves I know. I know the one of you who's watched Kids in the Hall and understands that is laughing really hard right now. But uh, you know, every time I it. hear
0: the name Dave, this will tell you my era. I have like just a quick, almost like subliminal messaging type of image of, of Dave Matthews. Really. Well, because for a long time yeah. he was like he was just Dave. I like I like to listen to Dave. Yeah. And then I was reminded of this because I was at a concert a couple of days ago, and the mm-hmm. opening band was not very good. Mm-hmm. That's why they were the opener. Mm-hmm. And every single one of their songs was profoundly influenced by a late '90s or early '2000s like rock or pop group, and Dave Matthews was was one of them. And it was it gave me headaches, kind of like Dave Matthews. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today. But you said Dave and. You know, no free that's, free flowing. That's, right. you know, that's fair. It's like the Rorschach test of podcasting.
1: Absolutely. You know, whenever I think Dave Matthews, I think uh, Dave Matthews Band. I think Coldplay because they kind of fit in the same like weirdly popular for a season with a certain type of person who's trying to sa- who's trying to be. Um. Cool, but still kind of mainstream?
0: Right. So before hipsters really existed, mm-hmm. those were kind of Coldplay, I remember especially. They were the band that people loved to say, I liked Coldplay before they were cool. Right. right? That's like the original yeah. hipster statement. I liked blank before it was cool. Now, like, nothing ever gets cool. That's the new hipster thing. Like, everything's ironic and nothing is cool. So mm-hmm. that no longer applies. But I mean, I remember listening to Coldplay in 2003 mm-hmm. and before they had hit it big riding my friend's ugly blue Ford, Ford Taurus and he was like hey check out this band and I didn't like them yeah. so I did not like Coldplay before they were cool but I did hear them Dave Matthews I don't know like I don't know that they were ever that I feel like they were just sort of they just sort of took over the music scene and I can never figure out why I think it's because white dudes with guitars needed something more than Wonderwall to play fair and they were like, well, it's this, and then we've got John Mayer, he came up next. So, gosh, John and Dave ruining music for white boys with guitars.
1: That's true, that's true. Or really
0: girls around white boys with guitars, let's be honest.
1: Yeah, that's actually more accurate. So, but uh, that's that's not what we're going to talk about today. No, thankfully. No. no, instead. Got that out of the way. That's right. Instead, so. Are since, we at
0: six minutes of banter yet, though?
1: Oh, we're getting close. Okay. We're around three. Have we
0: lost that listener yet? <laughs> I hope so. Because I feel like ever since she was like, lose the six minutes of banter, we were like, no, we're going to do eight. We're yeah. going to lose the six and go to eight. That's right. <laughs> Just well, for you,
1: listener. Well, you know, the people who are into the banter, that's what they come for, really. You know, occasionally we'll talk about a book. And that's and that's about it. But uh, today, since it's just the writers in the room, we're going to talk about the writing process.
0: Is there a more pretentious phrase than the writing process? If there is, I haven't found it yet to chew on that one. Maybe it'll come to mind. But I feel like that phrase, like even saying like this is my writing process makes me immediately feel like I should apologize and go like take a shower. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair. It's kind of
1: gross. That's fair. Well, to be fair, it's also really sweaty in here. So you might need to take a shower <laughs> anyway.
0: Maybe that's the
1: shower. Yeah. <laughs> that's the shower impetus. There you go. There you go. But uh, but I mean, you and I both have, we, for lack of a better word, we do have a process that we follow, that's true. Um, even if that process only makes sense to each of us. Um, so we thought we'd give a little bit of insight into that's
0: that. That's an important point, though, because I think people, especially those who are trying to figure out how to, like, how to write a book, not just how to write, you know, yeah. an essay or a blog post, they always want to know, like, what's the the best writing process? And the right. answer is there isn't one. Correct. I think. So you, it, there has to be some conglomeration of habits, practices, disciplines, ideas that just work for you.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and I mean, what you'll find, and I mean, certainly what I find, I don't know if you have this experience, but, um, how I like my process changes from project to project. Yep. It's what makes sense for that piece. And mm-hmm. also like for whether it's length, um, purpose, whatever it is. So stage
0: of life, you Yeah. Know, if you, depending on your circumstances, so you go read a book like on writing by Stephen King and he talks about his writing process. It's of no value to me whatsoever. Cause you know what he does for a living? He writes, mm-hmm. which means he can get up in the morning and all he has to do that day is write and then figure out how to break up his time. You and I have full-time jobs. We have kids. We have a church that we're invested in. Mm-hmm. I think we, we may even have some friends. Like You you start to figure out how to fit writing into life and all of that professional writer nonsense, it just doesn't apply at all. Yeah. Have, it, it becomes a matter of – Prioritization and scheduling, and what are you going to sacrifice really? Like, what are you giving up to make this happen?
1: Right. And I know certainly that thing for me is often sleep.
0: (laughs) It's the the easiest thing to give up because it's, you know, you're not allowed to say you're going to give up your kids, Mm -hmm. despite that being kind of a a tempting option sometimes. Um, Not allowed to, you know, if you're, you know, if you're leading something at church, maybe you can step away from that for a time, be like, mm-hmm. Hey, somebody else lead this class or whatever, lead a small group. But even that, like that's usually a commitment. Certainly can't step away from full-time work, although you can take no. days off. Yes. Um, I usually do that in every book. I usually, which each each of my books, I've usually taken about a week off total, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in one day at a time or kind of a, a block of time. Um, but again, then you're kind of sacrificing vacation days because those are days you could have been at the beach or visiting family over Christmas or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you sleep is the easiest thing. You just stay up late and drink too much coffee and then you wake up tired the next day and do it again.
1: Yep, that's right. And by the, and by the end, you're a, a monster who suddenly loves cats and you don't know why.
0: But that's never happened to me. No? Monster, yes. Cats, no.
1: Okay, there you go. And
0: mm-hmm. somehow Dave doesn't do this and still loves cats. So <laughs> I don't think there's a correlation between that and cats Mm. all right all right and so go walk me through without like the the granular details sure from i think this might be an idea for a book to here editor here's my finished manuscript
1: right well a big piece of that for me is i mean aside from the paralyzing uh fear of failure and that Often will make me set something aside for a good long while because I'm not sure I have something worth saying, hmm. or, um, or I just don't think that what I've got is is necessarily right for me to start um, at that particular time. Um, what often will happen is is an idea will <laughs> sit in the in the back of my head for a long time before I can actually start working on it. But what often will happen is is that once it's like, okay, I want to see what I can do here, it's, I start work, workshopping it in on a blog. And, um, and that's really helpful for me is because it's just I'm, I'm playing with ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm noodling, noodling, trying to figure out what the voice is for, for a particular project and seeing if I actually have something worth saying. Because it might be that what I think is an idea for a book is actually just a thousand words. And if it's just yeah. a thousand words, then then I don't need to worry about it beyond that. So so I can take care of a, an idea really really quickly, and that tells me do I have more to say, do I not? Uh, an example of that is um, a post series that I did for mm-hmm. uh, for for the church a few years ago, back when they first launched. The whole idea was was uh, the the title of the series was Letters to a New Believer. And so it was. It was advice that I wanted to give, that I wished I had had when I was a brand new convert at the age of twenty-five, mm-hmm. um, versus being thirty-five. Um, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, you know, <laughs> I'm 40 this summer.
0: 35 was like three months ago for me. I remember those days fondly. <sighs> yeah,
1: yeah. It's
0: wasn't a great year, but you know, I made it. But it was a year. Yeah.
1: You got through.
0: Was, <clears throat> if you live through a year, it's not the worst year.
1: Exactly, exactly. So so that was kind of the thing with that one is is I just started working through that, working through some of those, those major beats. And then I had someone else actually tell me, hey, you should actually turn that into a book. And start thinking through some of that more. Where can you go deeper? I, that, Where me, can you? Let me
0: jump in and ask you a question kay. about that. So, sure, I hate it when people tell me I should turn things into books. Okay, like it just doesn't. It, the way that my kind of idea formation process mm-hmm. works, again, there's that that pretentious word process. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't work. If somebody's like, "Oh, you should absolutely," do I'm like, "I don't have ideas about that." What right. I wrote was like, "That's what I had." So. How does it strike you when people say that? Is that encouraging? Is it terrifying? Is it like that's the impetus you needed, the spur to kind of get it going? How does that hit you?
1: Sometimes all of the above. So um, and and all at the same time with that particular one because that's the one that I'm uh, I'm proposing to propose. I knew I had more to say, but I was trying to stick to a word count, mm-hmm. and so I had okay. 750 words for a post, and I didn't want to have a 37. 37- Thousand Here's part that series. Gospel
0: coalition. You don't need seventeen hundred and fifty or seven thousand seven hundred and fifty. Just seven hundred
1: and fifty. That's, right. that's right. That's right. Seven fifty works great. Um, sometimes three hundred works really
0: well. That's true.
1: That's that's really good.
0: It's, I don't really blog anymore, but I, I've heard that's true.
1: That's true. I've I've started to try to get back into it again.
0: I don't like blogging. No, it's. Again, there, that's another. I guess that's part of a writing process, writing style thing too. Like mm-hmm. the process you're describing is not at all what I would do. Right. But you were in the middle. I'm yeah, not yeah, yeah, no, it's, derail fine. You. it's yeah, fine. I yeah, blogging to exp- kind of to to test out ideas or see like that's just not that wasn't my evaluation process.
1: Yeah. Well, and there's nothing wrong with and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, when like there are certain things like the first book I wrote, I read, I I did. I didn't really start workshopping anything on it until I was mostly done, um, and so that was more so it was more finessing and almost previewing content as opposed to um, as opposed to actually like working out the idea in public um, in that in that mm-hmm. instance, um, and so that one so I mean you think about the the poverty book that I did that one was. The process on that was very different from from even how the idea for this next one that I'm proposing started, Um, because it was it was just I don't I don't know how to think about this. I'm exposed to a lot of stupid thinking around the whole concept of poverty (laughs) alleviation, um, because unfortunately, there's a lot of smart people who say really stupid things in that space. So how do we how do we think, how do I think better about it? How do I think biblically about it? And how do I not fall into the trap of, you know, we can save the world, nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what led me through that process. and my starting point, of course, being the Bible. Well, let's see what the Bible says. And being able to trace the trace the origins of of poverty through, like, to the fall itself, and how and how that that theme comes up again and again and again throughout scripture mm-hmm. while tracing tracing the narrative of redemption. So so it's it's kind of fun to be able to do stuff like that. And then Yeah. 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 And so it was just I started writing it yeah. just to see what would happen. And I was doing it in my off time on top of blogging and on top of all my daily work. Um, and so it was really tiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if you want to, if, if you think that there is a leisurely life of writing and that's sort of like, it it just seems sort of like a romantic notion. Mm. I think you are sorely mistaken.
1: It's true. There's a lot of self doubt. Well,
0: even I just mean, I just mean (laughs) even like the time that it takes, because if you want to make a living as a writer, you have two options. You get really lucky. Or you hustle to the point of like working your fingers to the bone, Mm -hmm. which means writing a ton of crap that you don't want to write. Right. Because that's what pays the bills. So you're bidding on marketing copywriting and contracting work and web copy and just just junk writing. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm just using all the adjectives I know to describe a product I would never purchase. That's mm-hmm. what that is. And you get paid in $100 and $200 and $50 and $11 and eight cents per word and whatever else. And you're usually having to go extract payment out of people. That's the life of a writer until you, till you get to that sort of privileged, lucky position of maybe you're a staff writer for a website. There are not very many of those. That's sort of like being a professional athlete. Kind of, yeah. And just in terms of the percentage of those people – Uh, or you write a book that sells really well. But again, you have to keep doing that because very few books will pay you enough year over year to to set you up for, you know, like a salary. Yeah, totally. And there's no benefits with those either. There's no days off. There's no health benefits. There's no vacation days. There's no nothing. It's just you get an advance and most advances are enough to like pay off a credit card or maybe buy a new fridge or whatever. They're not, you know, they're not life-changing money. All that to just sort of like, squash the romantic idea of life as a writer. I just, Mm -hmm. I was very comfortable with that because I was like, I don't don't want that life anyway. Sure. I would be bored if all I did was write and sit by myself. I don't dig isolation that much. So Mm. you might have a different take on that.
1: I do. I do like being by myself a lot. I like
0: it for about a (laughs) week at a time. You know, so going away for a week to write is great, but like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to spend all day every day doing that. That sounds... That sounds a little bit like claustrophobic to me. Right.
1: Well, you tend to be like you said you're an extrovert, so yeah. so you tend to be energized a little bit by people. Certainly, at least people you like, um, at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes. Whereas not, not all humans. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> whereas I'm exhausted even by people I love dearly. <laughs> I mean, I'm most exhausted by the people I love most dearly, but that's cuz they're my children.
0: Sure. And children are exhausting.
1: Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. Well, I had uh we I had one of our coworkers here at Lifeway. We we were doing some personality profile kind of stuff. We did this one thing and a consultant was reviewing it and was just like, "So, what do you do exactly?" And I'm like, "So, I'm Basically, I'm a spokesperson for for the gospel project. And so I'm out, I'm talking to people mm. at conferences, I'm, you know, on phone calls. I'm doing this, that. I also do podcast speaking, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, You're tired all the time. And I said, Yeah, I could tell you that. Correct. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying the so the, the idea the, of the the romanticized like the writer's ri- life, the little
0: writer shack in the woods, sounds really nice to Aaron.
1: Oh my gosh, does So, it ever. all
0: right, here's another question about writing style <laughs> yeah. process. Are you a are you a write at home person, Are you a write at coffee shops person? Are you like a hole up in a quiet place? Do you need like what what is your writing environment?
1: I'm most effective in a coffee shop. Okay. Um, Me too. Yeah. Um, background noise is really helpful. I kind, even, I, even kind of wish, my... I kind of wish
0: we had like the the English university town thing mm-hmm. where, you know, you have like the pub set up where you're like, you can get to your coffee or you can get something else. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't know anything about that. Though. Uh, it, hypothetically speaking, yeah. um, pint glasses of something-ish. Coke. Um, b- <laughs> but because, uh, you know, you spending like seven hours a day in a coffee shop. It's a lot of coffee. It's
1: a lot of coffee. Or it's
0: a lot of I feel like I'm imposing, or the seats get uncomfortable, or whatever. So yeah. yeah I kind of wish we had yeah. more options, but,
1: but I mean yeah. you just go, you know, I have a rotation of places that I go to, and so I try not spend about more than about three hours in any one place just for um just for courtesy and respect and make sure I make sure I pay my rent. I get antsy <laughs> after three hours in one place anyway. Yeah.
0: Like sitting sitting so when my dad writes Mm -hmm. it's like hole up in an office or like a library carol or something for me he can do eight to 12 hours a day you know like i I don't get break to eat lunch and drink coke zero sure that's about it and i yeah that sound i mean that's robotic to me
1: now that said i sat in um on epic because i was crunched on my deadlines (laughs) i had um I took a couple of weekends where I just sat at the f- in uh, in the common area in the factory of, in Franklin, mm. and I just sat there and I just was grinding that thing out. And
0: deadlines are good for that; they're really good for that.
1: I I'm like that leading up to a deadline.
0: Yeah, where I mean, I can I can go from seven a.m. to five or six p.m. You know, breaks for food or whatever. Yeah. Like go walk around the block, get some fresh air. But like, yeah. I can do that if the deadline is, you know, if it's, if it's Saturday and I'm doing that and the deadline is Monday. Yeah. But if I've got a week plus. See,
1: nah. I was, I was doing it with three weeks to go. So
0: Dep- I mean, it depends on workload. I, yeah. I always, my habit is always, and kids don't do this in school. It's a terrible idea. Works for me, but probably isn't good for you is to know what the deadline is, mm-hmm. figure out the amount of work and just backdate everything from there. Mm-hmm. Cause that tells me how much time I have to not do anything. Yep. Before I really have to hit the gas on a project.
1: That's right. That's right. And I don't know that, that it's just,
0: do. I don't know that it's a good habit. It's a realistic habit. It's my, what most of us do anyway. My current editor is not thrilled with it. So the book that I'm working on right now <laughs> is well, they. So I'm working with the Good Book Company. Yeah. And great editors. Everybody I've talked to who's written with them. So we have a number of friends who have published with them. Love working with them. They say they're great. They improve the books. The editors are great to work with. They, you know, they really dig in. But they have a very different process where they, rather than doing what I just described and turning in a whole manuscript at the deadline, they want things submitted chapter by chapter.
1: Mm-hmm. That's and, an and odd so process.
0: That was my first impression too. Here's the benefit of it. So okay. first you have to you have to put together a detailed outline, mm-hmm. which I hate because mm-hmm. I like being sort of fluid in the like, Uh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there, kind of build it as I go. Mm -hmm. But it was a really beneficial practice because I now have a great sense of confidence that at no point will I hit, I don't know what to do next. Right, It's right there. I already wrote it out. I wrote out paragraph, descriptions, kind of what are the texts that I think I'm going to work into this chapter. So it's the book about happiness and expectations, kind of an Ecclesiastes look at these things. Um, And so then the other op- the other thing is that there there will be no no surprises on either side. Yeah. So turn in a chapter, the editor comes back and says, you know, they're dealing with writing style issues, they're dealing with content issues, they're dealing with length, whatever it is. But by the time you've done that two or three times, say, I think this book is going to be 12 to 14 chapters, not real long ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like after two or three, my guess is we will have developed a, a working rhythm so that It's no longer like I have to wait to hear back before I can turn the next one in. It's just sort of like move along because we understand how this is going. And when the deadline arrives, everything will have already been submitted. Most of it will already have been edited. Mm -hmm. And there's just a great sense of confidence. Because the first – my first book, the most unpleasant surprise for me was the realization that writing the book is not remotely close to the end of the process. Mm -hmm. So I turned in whatever, 35,000 words in the manuscript for the pastor's kid, and the editor sends back, and I'm like, big sense of relief. Yeah. No, no big sense of relief. Then you get back a Word document with all of the track changes. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through and be like, yeah, I'm fine with the commas, correct all the capitalizations. Yes, we can rearrange it. Wait, you want to do what with that chapter? No. And so then you get into disputes with editors, et cetera. Yeah, and and that's so the process of doing it bit by bit just means it's. Mm-hmm. I think it. I think it assuages some of that. And for the second, say the second half of a book, it also allows for more um, kind of more consistency because you're starting to write in a way that that there's an agreed upon vision for this thing. Yes. which is really important with an editor. Yeah, now, you don't want to be at odds with an editor. Being at odds with an editor stinks. I've only had that. Minimally, and pretty good experiences overall, mm-hmm. but it's not a fun experience.
1: No, no, I mean, where where I had a minor bit uh, of conflict on one, and it was minor. It was like conflict is even too strong a word. It was more like we had a couple of things happen on on uh, my first two. One was a um, was an interesting thing where the editor added in just a little chunk. Um, it was probably about like about 150 words kind of thing um <clears throat> that was a great addition and was something that I had actually initially cut for length mm-hmm. um and um and so my feedback on it had been this is really great I'm glad you added this in I had this in there I had cut it for these reasons I have to go back and rework this though and he's like well what's the problem is it a is it a theological thing is it and I'm like no 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 it's just it doesn't sound like me and so it's like – and he's like, ah, got it. OK, cool. And so so that was that was some of that kind of stuff that we had to work through there. But on another one – And that's one, a pretty
0: standard thing where – because a good editor will come back and say it would be beneficial if you added this. And then they'll give you sort of like a sample of like it could sound something like this. But usually they'll say – put that in your own words. Yeah. Oh, totally. Because they they understand – a good editor understands the significance of voice and style because people aren't reading – a treatise on something by nobody. They're reading a book on something by this author, by Aaron, by somebody with a voice, a perspective, a style. Yep. And that's, you know, they don't want to be sort of, they don't want to disjointed.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the hardest one that I had was, and it was still helpful and necessary. I had to rewrite the back half of a book, whole back half. And the reason was, because um as he was as the editor was was working through it he he felt like it was losing the plot Mm -hmm. a little bit and he's like this is all really good and all helpful and all necessary but i'm i'm struggling to to make all the pieces fit here so he's like i think i need you to just redo it and and that hurt because then i was in a deadline crunch again but uh, – because I got it done early and I had done it restfully and like in the margins. Goodness, and... you're so much more diligent than I am. <laughs> I
0: Well – See, and the other thing is like the, there's also a piece of – so I hear – I often hear people who are, who are writers, prospective writers kind of talk about like the fear that they won't be able to do it. Like you said, sort of fear of failure, insecurity mm-hmm. – after writing some, I just sort of ran out of that. Mm -hmm. And I've learned that like, oh, I just, I know I can do it. Yeah. Like I just don't worry about getting the job done, Mm -hmm. which also enables my procrastination to a degree. (laughs) But it also means like there, I don't, I don't worry about, I don't worry about being rushed because I don't think my quality of writing deteriorates by doing it in a kind of fast focused way. Whereas, because some people feel like if they, you know, if they can be more leisurely, put more thought into it, craft it differently. I'm like, I don't think I craft anything differently. That's just a style thing. Sure. I don't. I think, in fact, in some ways, I would write worse if I tried to do what you're describing.
1: Well, I mean, it, what it sounds like is is that um, the longer you have, the more you have the risk of overthinking how something is going to turn, like how you would say something. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, I think that's a fair concern.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the other aspect of it is there, there's a, there, there are kind of two writing styles when it comes to revisions. There's, you sort of pour your slop out on paper and then you go back and fix it or you write it in such a manner the first time that you, sometimes it's sort of revising as you go. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people advise against that. I think that's a bad habit when you're writing fiction. Uh-huh. My understand. I don't. I don't write fiction, but my understanding is that revising as you go in fiction will just paralyze you, because there has to be sort of like you have to get the story from A to Z and then go back and fix how the story sounds. When you're writing nonfiction, so it's a it's a you're writing you're writing ideas. Like you already know the A to Z, and so then the whole writing process is how am I doing this, uh-huh. um, and, and not sort of what is this thing, and so. That's another piece of it is the – I I tend to write that way. So there's a lot of just – and I outline everything by hand. Okay. So at any given time, I, I do not n- – no first kind of first draft goes onto a computer. Mm-hmm. The computer is where the product is created. Mm-hmm. The notebook is where, like, the materials are crafted. So that's the like, the scribbling in the margins. There's outlining. There's particular, you know, jotting down a particular phrase that I go, okay, I really, that's that's a must. I like the way that sounds or whatever it is. Um, and it just sort of looks like this, the etchings of a madman. Yeah. But that enables me then when I sit down to type it out, I've already kind of cleaned up the mess. Mm-hmm. I've tightened up the ideas. I know where the paragraphs are going or the the chapter is going. And that, that for me is a, a key part of the process too because I hate editing on screen. Yeah, I just, like, I don't mind going through and just hit accept. Like, when an editor sends me stuff, my temptation is just hit it, accept all changes. Yeah, Like, yes, just all of them, whatever. Because yeah. I don't like, computers are not a pleasant reading or creating experience for me. They're mm. purely utilitarian. So all of that happens in these notebooks that, you know are then filled up with just gibberish yeah and trashed
1: yeah and see I have such a terrible case of left-handed dude that I can't like I wouldn't I wouldn't even be able to make sense of my (laughs) of my chicken scratch Um, like I'm waiting for uh, an archaeologist 100 years 150,000 years from now to find uh, find a journal of mine and be like what was this yeah (laughs) this just looks like scribbles are you a perfectionist Um, I, I have a habit of being. Okay. See, that I'm not. Yeah. And that
0: – I have a really high standard for writing. Mm-hmm. But I don't think in terms of perfectionism, which means that when – so that, that means two things. One, it means that what I know that what I'm turning into an editor just needs work. Yeah. I And I tell them that. I'm like, this was my best effort. I'm counting on you to point out all the places I need to improve this. Yeah. Because I'm assuming that I need to. Yep and I could read it five more times and I don't know that I would see any of them. But the other is that I don't assume that any of my books are kind of finished. Sure. They're finished enough. Yeah. And so there's a sense in which I think people want to have 100% satisfaction with their written work and you just won't. You just come to the place where you're like, this was my best effort, my best contribution to so I did a book on pastors kid, I did a book on faith and doubt, book on curiosity. Like are any of those the definitive word on those things? No. My hope is that they are the right kind of contribution to connect with the right kind of reader and mm-hmm. that I didn't say anything terrible or stylistically just crappy. Right. But I mean that's that's kind of it. Yeah. And I think perfectionism is a—it's a terrible
1: bane for writers. It, it definitely can be. I mean, for me, it is more. Did I say it the way I wanted to say it? And yeah. that's the way. And um, I care a lot about. I don't know if it's if it's more than other people do, but I care about I care about how a the rhythm of of my writing a lot. Like there's a and there is a a certain almost a meter that, um, carries through a lot of, a lot of my work mm-hmm. that is like, it's, it basically almost has a, has a sound to it. Yeah. Um, and that it's like, I can tell right away when it's like someone doesn't get it. Um, when they're, when they're editing my work that it just doesn't, it doesn't feel right Yeah, in that way. And so I have to do a lot of work there, but for me, like I'm constantly, mm-hmm. like I am by the time it's someone is seeing my first draft, it's probably my fifth or sixth, and it is all done on the computer. Yeah. Um, doing um, outlining is actually really hard for me, at times because um, I didn't really learn how to do that well. Um, but I mean, I was the guy who would pull you know pull twenty five hundred word essays out of his rear end in in college. Yeah. Um, the night the the day after it was due so um, I didn't,
0: yeah i didn't outline <laughs> um i didn't outline well until i started writing the pastor's kid and i realized like this is people people will say oh it's 10 chapters it's like 10 blog posts mm-hmm. not if you want to write a good book nope they have to they have, they have to build on each other refer back to each other this has to be a single idea um, or it's a collection of essays, which is a whole different style. Right. And, and so I had to figure out how to outline and use my previous pieces of the outline. So I outline it chapter by chapter and then go back and go, okay, I said this here. I don't need to say it again here. That's redundant. And my editor caught a couple of things mm-hmm. where they were like, you, you use this exact same verse here to say mm-hmm. a related thing. I don't think you need it in both places. So, you know. And thank God for good editors who catch stuff like that. Or mm-hmm. what you were describing with the voice – just stylistically, an editor who's not sitting down and going, this is not proper English. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm like that – if everybody wrote everything properly, we would all sound the same and be boring. There has to be kind of the the unique writing flourish of, a, of an author for it to, to matter.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I appreciate – I appreciate editors who, who understand voice and – tone i have been i have not i've never been more frustrated than one editor who kept trying to change things that i did on purpose mm. you know sort of the you put together a longer complex compound sentence to express something and then you followed up with like something short and punchy just again just to 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 alter the pace the rhythm so that it doesn't become droning or monotonous Using one-word sentences periodically, but not like Rob Bell, mm-hmm. who writes eighty percent in three-word sentences or less, which is barely English. Yep. Um, and they they just kept wanting to break up the compound sentences, so they wanted every sentence to be like eight words instead of you know sixteen words, three words, right, twelve words, seven words, where there's a there's a cadence and a and a yeah, you know, it sounds like a person talking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those things where I'm like, even they haven't read William Zinser apparently, because even Zinser talks about like, isn't this more enjoyable to the ear of the reader than this? Yeah. I right, One last question. Right. I know we yep. got to go. Yep. What are your thoughts on the advice, write like you speak?
1: Generally, there is, the short version is I don't think it's helpful because speaking, um, if you write the way you speak in a certain sense- um, so here's what, let me back that up there's a sense in which yes you should write like you speak in that your your spoken your spoken voice and your written voice should line up so what you read should sound should have a have the same kind of feel as listening to listening to the person mm-hmm. but it is not terribly You're listening to The Table of Malcontents, where Aaron Armstrong, Dave Schrader, and Barnabas Piper talk about the books they love and a few they really don't to help you be a better reader. (laughs) Books and podcasts are always best with a great cup of coffee. That's why we've partnered with Ligaris Roasters to create the Table of Malcontents blend. And guys, it's delicious. A smooth Brazilian roast that will make your heart happy. Head over to LigarisRoasters.com to order a bag or 12 today. Hey everybody, welcome to a special episode of Table of Malcontents. I'm Aaron, and with me today is just Barnabas. That's why it's special. That's because right. Because Dave's not here. That's true, that's true. We can make cat cat jokes. Forty without... Dave,
0: Cat Lady Dave, all of the Daves are absent. Yep.
1: These are the Daves I know, I know. The one of you who's watched Kids in the Hall and understands that is laughing really hard right now. But, uh... You know, every that's time a... I
0: hear the name Dave, this will tell you my era. I have, like, just a quick... Almost like subliminal messaging type of image of, of Dave Matthews. Really? Well, because for a long time yeah. he was like he was just Dave. I like I like to listen to Dave. Yeah. And then I was reminded of this because I was at a concert a couple of days ago, and the mm-hmm. opening band was not very good. Mm-hmm. That's why they were the opener. Mm-hmm. And every single one of their songs was profoundly influenced by a late '90s or early '2000s like rock or pop group, and Dave Matthews was was one of them, and it was. It gave me headaches, kind of like Dave Matthews. Yeah. That doesn't have anything to do with what we're talking about today, but you said Dave and, you know, no, free-flowing That's right. Free you know, that's fair. It's like the Rorschach test of podcasting.
1: Absolutely. You know, whenever I think Dave Matthews, I think uh, Dave Matthews Band, I think Coldplay. Because they kind of fit in the same, like, weirdly popular for a season with a certain type of person – Who's trying, to sa- who's trying to be um, cool but still kind of mainstream.
0: Right. So before hipsters really existed, mm-hmm. those were kind of – Coldplay I remember especially. They were the band that people loved to say, I liked Coldplay before they were cool. Right. right? That's like the original yeah. hipster statement. I liked blank before it was cool. Now like nothing ever gets cool. That's the new hipster thing. Like everything's ironic and nothing is cool. So mm-hmm. that no longer applies. But – I mean, I remember listening to Coldplay in 2003 mm-hmm. kind of before they had hit it big, riding my friend's ugly blue Ford, Ford Taurus. And he was like, hey, check out this band. And I didn't like them. Yeah. So I did not like Coldplay before they were cool. But I did hear them. Dave Matthews, I don't know. Like, I don't know that they were ever that. I feel like they were just sort of – they just sort of took over the music scene and I could never figure out why. I think it's because white dudes with guitars needed something more than Wonderwall to play fair and they were like well it's this and then we've got John Mayer he came up next so gosh John and Dave ruining music for white boys with guitars
1: that's true that's true or really
0: girls around white boys with guitars let's be honest
1: yeah, that's actually more accurate. So, but uh, that's that's not what we're going to talk about today. No, thankfully. No. no, instead. Got that out of the way. That's right. Instead, so. Are we at
0: six minutes of banter yet, though?
1: Oh, we're getting close. Okay. We're around three. Have we lost
0: that listener yet? <laughs> I hope so. Because I feel like ever since she was like, lose the six minutes of banter, we were like, no, we're going to do eight. We're yeah. going to lose the six and go to eight. That's right. <laughs> Just well, for you, listener.
1: Well, you know, the people who are into the banter, that's what they come for, really. You know, occasionally we'll talk about a book. And that's and that's about it. But uh, today, since it's just the writers in the room, we're going to talk about the writing process. Is there a more
0: pretentious phrase than the writing process? If there is, I haven't found it yet to chew on that one. Maybe it'll come to mind. But I feel like that phrase, like even saying like this is my writing process makes me immediately feel like I should apologize and go like take a shower. <laughs> Yeah, that's fair.
1: It's kind of gross. That's fair. Well, to be fair, it's also really sweaty in here. So you might need to take a <laughs> shower anyway. The, maybe
0: that's the shower.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that's the shower impetus. There you go. There you go. But uh, but I mean, you and I both have, we, for lack of a better word, we do have a process that we follow, true. Um, even if that process only makes sense to each of us. Um, so we thought we'd give a little bit of insight into that's
0: that. That's an important point, though, because I think people, especially those who are trying to figure out how to, like, how to write a book, not just how to write, you know, yeah. an essay or a blog post, they always want to know, like, what's the the best writing process? And the right. answer is there isn't one. Correct. I think. So you, it, it, there has to be some conglomeration of habits, practices, disciplines, ideas that just work for you.
1: Yeah. Oh, totally. And, and I mean, what you'll find, and I mean, certainly what I find, I don't know if you have this experience, but, um, how I like my process changes from project to project. Yep. It's what makes sense for that piece. And mm-hmm. also like for whether it's length, um, purpose, whatever it is. So stage
0: of life. You yeah. Know, if you, depending on your circumstances. So you go read a book like on writing by Stephen King and he talks about his writing process. It's of no value to me whatsoever. Cause you know what he does for a living? He writes, mm-hmm. which means he can get up in the morning and all he has to do that day is write and then figure out how to break up his time. You and I have full-time jobs. We have kids. We have a church that we're invested in. Mm-hmm. I think we, we may even have some friends. Like you, you start to figure out how to fit writing into life and all of that professional writer nonsense, it just doesn't apply at all. Yeah. Have, it, it becomes a matter of – prioritization and scheduling and what are you going to sacrifice really like what are you giving up to make this
1: happen right and i know certainly that thing for me is often sleep
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's the the easiest thing to give up because it's you know you're not allowed to say you're going to give up your kids Mm -hmm. despite that being kind of a, a tempting option sometimes um not allowed to you know if you're, you know, if you're leading something at church, maybe you can step away from that for a time, be like, mm-hmm. Hey, somebody else lead this class or whatever, lead a small group. But even that, like that's usually a commitment. Certainly can't step away from full-time work. Although you can take nope. days off. Yes. Um, I usually do that in every book. I usually, which each each of my books, I've usually taken about a week off total, mm-hmm. you know, whether it's in one day at a time or kind of a, a block of time. Um, but again, then you're kind of sacrificing vacation days because those are days you could have been at the beach or visiting family over Christmas or something like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so you sleep is the easiest thing. You just stay up late and drink too much coffee and then you wake up tired the next day and do it again.
1: Yep, that's right. And by the, and by the end, you're a, a monster who suddenly loves cats and you don't know why.
0: But that's never happened to me. No? Monster, yes. Cats, no.
1: Okay, there you go.
0: And somehow Dave doesn't do this and still loves cats. So <laughs> I don't think... There's a correlation between that and cats. Mm. All right. All right. And All so right. go walk me through without like the the granular details sure. from I think this might be an idea for a book to here, editor, here's my finished manuscript.
1: Right. Well, a big piece of that for me is, I mean, aside from the paralyzing uh, fear of failure and that Often will make me set something aside for a good long while because I'm not sure I have something worth saying, hmm. or, um, or I just don't think that what I've got is is necessarily right for me to start um, at that particular time. Um, what often will happen is is an idea will <laughs> sit in the in the back of my head for a long time before I can actually start working on it. But what often will happen is, is that once it's like, okay, I want to see what I can do here, it's, I start work, workshopping it in, on a blog. And, um, and that's really helpful for me is because it's just I'm, I'm playing with ideas. Mm-hmm. I'm noodling, noodling, trying to figure out what the voice is for, for a particular project and seeing if I actually have something worth saying because it might be that what I think is an idea for a book is actually just a thousand words. And if it's just yeah. a thousand words, then then I don't need to worry about it beyond that. So so I can take care of a, an idea really really quickly, and that tells me do I have more to say, do I not? Uh, an example of that is um, a post series that I did for mm-hmm. uh, for for the church a few years ago, back when they first launched. The whole idea was was uh, the the title of the series was Letters to a New Believer. And so it was it was advice that I wanted to get that I wished I had had when I was a brand new convert at the age of twenty five mm-hmm. um, versus being thirty five. Um, that was a long time ago. It was a long time ago, you know, <laughs> I'm 40 this summer.
0: 35 was like three months ago for me. I remember those days fondly.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah. It's wasn't a
0: great year, but you know, I made it. But it was a year. Yeah. You got through. Was, if you live through a year, it's not the worst year.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, so that was kind of the thing with that one is, is I just started working through that, working through some of those, those major beats. And then I had someone else actually tell me, Hey, you should actually turn that into a book and start thinking through some of that more where can you go deeper I, that, where can me, you Let me
0: jump in and ask you a question okay. about that. So sure. I hate it when people tell me I should turn things into books. Okay. Like it just doesn't it, the way that my kind of idea formation process mm-hmm. works again there's that that pretentious word process. Mm-hmm. Um, it just doesn't work. If somebody's like, "Oh, you should absolutely do" I'm like, "I don't have ideas about that. What right. I wrote was like that's what I had." So how does it strike you when people say that? Is that encouraging? Is it terrifying? Is it like that's the impetus you needed, the spur to kind of get it going? How does that hit you?
1: Sometimes all of the above So um, and, and all at the same time. With that particular one, because that's the one that I'm uh, I'm proposing to propose, I knew I had more to say, but I was trying to stick to a word count. <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so I had okay. 750 words for a post, and I didn't want to have a 37 37- – Thousand Here's part that gospel series.
0: Coalition. You don't need seventeen hundred and fifty or seven thousand seven hundred and fifty. Just seven hundred and fifty. That's, right. that's right.
1: That's right. Seven fifty works great. Um, sometimes three hundred works really
0: well. That's true. That's
1: that's really good. It's, I don't really
0: blog anymore, but I, I've heard that's true.
1: That's true. I've I've started to try to get back into it again.
0: I don't like blogging. No, it's. Again, that's another. I guess that's part of a writing process, writing style thing too. Like Mm -hmm. the process you're describing is not at all what I would do. Right. But you were in the middle. Yeah, yeah, no, it's fine. Yeah, blogging to kind of to to test out ideas or see like that's just not that wasn't my evaluation process. Yeah.
1: Well, and there's nothing wrong with and there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, when like there are certain things like the first book I wrote, I read, I I did. I didn't really start workshopping anything on it until I was mostly done, um, and so that was more so it was more finessing and almost previewing content as opposed to um, as opposed to actually like working out the idea in public um, in that in that mm-hmm. instance, um, and so that one so I mean you think about the the poverty book that I did that one was. The process on that was very different from from even how the idea for this next one that I'm proposing started, Um, because it was it was just I don't I don't know how to think about this. I'm exposed to a lot of stupid thinking around the whole concept of poverty alleviation, Um, because unfortunately, there's a lot of smart people who say really stupid things in that space. So how do we how do we, think, how do I think better about it? How do I think biblically about it? And how do I not fall into the trap of, you know, we can save the world, nonsense. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was what led me through that process and my starting point, of course, being the Bible. Well, let's see what the Bible says. And being able to trace the trace the origins of of poverty through, like to the fall itself, and how and how that that theme comes up again and again and again throughout scripture mm-hmm. while tracing tracing the narrative of redemption. So, so it's it's kind of fun to be able to do stuff like that. And then Yeah. 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 And so it was just I started writing it yeah. just to see what would happen. And I was doing it in my off time on top of blogging and on top of all my daily work. Um, and so it was really tiring.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, if you want to, if, if you think that there is a leisurely life of writing and that's sort of like, it it just seems sort of like a romantic notion. Mm. I think you are sorely mistaken.
1: It's true. There's a lot of self doubt. Well, even I just mean, I just mean (laughs)
0: even like the time that it takes, because if you want to make a living as a writer, you have two options. You get really lucky. Or you hustle to the point of like working your fingers to the bone, Mm -hmm. which means writing a ton of crap that you don't want to write. Right. Because that's what pays the bills. So you're bidding on marketing copywriting and contracting work and web copy and just just junk writing. Yeah. Where you're like, I'm just using all the adjectives I know to describe a product I would never purchase. That's mm-hmm. what that is. And you get paid in a hundred dollars and two hundred dollars and fifty dollars and eleven dollars and eight cents per word and whatever else, and you're usually having to go extract payment out of people. That's the life of a writer until you till you get to that sort of privileged, lucky position of maybe you're a staff writer for a website. There are not very many of those. That's sort of like being a professional athlete. Kinda, yeah. And just in terms of the percentage of those people Uh, or you write a book that sells really well. But again, you have to keep doing that because very few books will pay you enough year over year to to set you up for, you know, like a salary. Yeah, totally. And there's no benefits with those either. There's no days off. There's no health benefits. There's no vacation days. There's no nothing. It's just you get an advance and most advances are enough to like pay off a credit card or maybe buy a new fridge or whatever. They're not, you know, they're not life-changing money. All that to just sort of like, squash the romantic idea of life as a writer i just Mm. i was very comfortable with that because i was like i don't i don't want that life anyway sure i would be bored if all i did was write and sit by myself i don't dig isolation that much so Mm. you might have a different take on that
1: i do i do like being by myself a lot
0: i like it for about a (laughs) week at a time you know so going away for a week to write is great but Mm -hmm. like i don't want to spend all day every day doing that that sounds that sounds a little bit like claustrophobic to me. Right.
1: Well, you tend to be like y- you said you're an extrovert. So yeah. so you tend to be energized a little bit by people, certainly at least people you like um, at a minimum. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> yes. Whereas well, not all humans. Yeah. Sorry, listeners. <laughs> whereas I'm exhausted even by people I love dearly. <laughs>
0: I mean, I'm most exhausted by the people I love most dearly, but that's because they're my children. Sure, and children are exhausting.
1: Absolutely, um, absolutely. Well, I had uh, we I had one of our coworkers here at Lifeway. We we were doing some personality profile kind of stuff. We did this one thing, and a consultant was reviewing it and was just like, "So, what do you do exactly?" And I'm like, "So, I'm basically I'm a spokesperson for for the Gospel Project, and so I'm out. I'm talking to people mm. at conferences. I'm you know, on phone calls, I'm doing this, that. I also do podcast, speaking, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, "You're tired all the time." And I said, "Yeah, I could tell you that." Correct. <laughs> so, so I'm just saying the so the, the idea the, of the the romanticized like the writer's ri- life, the little
0: writer shack in the woods, sounds really nice to Aaron. Oh my
1: gosh, doesn't so, All
0: right, here's another question about writing <laughs> style yeah. process. Are you a are you a write-at-home person? Are you a write-at-coffee-shops person? Are you, like, a hole-up-in-a-quiet place? Do you need, like, what? what is your writing environment?
1: I'm most effective in a coffee shop. Okay. Um, Me too. Yeah. Um, background noise is really helpful. I even I even if I'm wish, we, my... I
0: kind of wish we had, like, the the English university town thing mm-hmm. where, you know, you have, like, the pub set up where you like, you can get to your coffee or you can get something else.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and we don't know anything about that, though. Uh, uh, hypothetically speaking. Yeah. Um, pint glasses of something-ish. Coke. Um, but because, uh, you know, you spending like seven hours a day in a coffee shop, that's a lot of coffee.
1: It's a lot of coffee. Or it's
0: a lot of I feel like I'm imposing or the seats get uncomfortable or whatever. So, yeah, yeah I kind of wish
1: we had yeah. more options, but... I but, mean, you yeah. just go. You know, I have a rotation of places that I go to, and so I try not spend about more than about three hours in any one place, just for um, just for courtesy and respect, and make sure I make sure I pay my rent. I get antsy <laughs> after three hours in one place anyway. Yeah, like sitting sitting.
0: So when my dad writes, mm-hmm. it's like hole up in an office or like a library, Carol or something. For I mean, he can do eight to twelve hours a day. You know, like I, I break, don't get break to eat lunch and drink Coke Zero. Sure. And that's about it. And I, yeah, that sound. I mean, that's robotic to yeah.
1: me. Now that said, I sat in, um, on Epic because I was crunched on my deadlines. <laughs> I had, um, I took a couple of weekends where I just sat at the, in, uh, in the common area in the factory in Franklin mm. and I just sat there and I just was grinding that thing out. And deadlines are good for that. They're really
0: good for that. I,
1: I'm like that leading up
0: to a deadline. Yeah. Where I mean I can I can go from seven AM to five or six PM, you know, breaks for food or whatever. Yeah. Go walk around the block, get some fresh air, but like yeah. I can do that if the deadline is, you know, if it's if it's Saturday and I'm doing that and the deadline is Monday. Yeah. But if I've yeah. got a week plus
1: Yeah, I was I was doing it with three weeks to go. So
0: yeah, Dep- I mean it depends on workload. I, yeah. I always my habit is always and kids don't do this in school it's a terrible idea works for me but probably isn't good for you is to know what the deadline is mm-hmm. figure out the amount of work and just backdate everything from there because mm-hmm. that tells me how much time i have to not do anything yep before i really have to hit the gas on a project
1: that's right that's right i don't know that it's sp- do.
0: i don't know that it's a good habit it's a realistic habit. It's my, what most of us do anyway. My current editor is not thrilled with it. So the book that I'm working on right now <laughs> is well they so I'm working with the Good Book Company. Yeah. And great editors, everybody I've talked to who's written with them, so we have a number of friends who have published with them love working with them. They say they're great, they improve the books, the editors are great to work with. They, you know, they really dig in, but they have a very different process where they Rather than doing what I just described and turning in a whole manuscript at the deadline, they want things submitted chapter by chapter.
1: Mm-hmm. That's and, an and odd so process.
0: That was my first impression too. Here's the benefit of it. So okay. first, you have to you have to put together a detailed outline, mm-hmm. which I hate because mm-hmm. I like being sort of fluid in the like. Uh, maybe I'll go here, maybe I'll go there, kind of build it as I go. Mm -hmm. But it was a really beneficial practice because I now have a great sense of confidence that at no point will I hit, I don't know what to do next. Right, It's right there. I already wrote it out. I wrote out paragraph, descriptions, kind of what are the texts that I think I'm going to work into this chapter. So it's the book about happiness and expectations, kind of an Ecclesiastes look at these things. Um, And so then, the other op, the other thing is that there there will be no no surprises on either side. Yeah. So, turn in a chapter. The editor comes back and says, you know, they're dealing with writing style issues, they're dealing with content issues, they're dealing with length, whatever it is. But by the time you've done that two or three times, say I think this book is going to be twelve to fourteen chapters, not real long ones. Mm-hmm. Um, like after two or three, my guess is we will have developed a a working rhythm, so that. It's no longer like I have to wait to hear back before I can turn the next one in. It's just sort of like move along because we understand how this is going. And when the deadline arrives, everything will have already been submitted. Most of it will already have been edited. Mm -hmm. And there's just a great sense of confidence. Because the first – my first book, the most unpleasant surprise for me was the realization that – writing the book is not remotely close to the end of the process. Mm -hmm. So I turned in whatever, 35,000 words in the manuscript for the pastor's kid, and the editor sends back, and I'm like, big sense of relief. Yeah. No, no big sense of relief. Then you get back a Word document with all of the track changes. Mm -hmm. And you have to go through and be like, yeah, I'm fine with the commas, correct all the capitalizations. Yes, we can rearrange it. Wait, you want to do what with that chapter? No. And so then you get into disputes with editors, et cetera. Yeah, and and that's so the process of doing it bit by bit just means it's.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I think it. I think it assuages some of that. And for the second, say the second half of a book, it also allows for more um, kind of more consistency because you're starting to write in a way that that there's an agreed upon vision for this thing. Yes. which is really important with an
1: editor. Yeah, now,
0: you don't want to be at odds with an editor. Being at odds with an editor stinks. I've only had that. Minimally, and pretty good experiences overall. Mm-hmm. But it's not a fun experience.
1: No, no. I mean, where where I had a minor bit uh, of conflict on one, and it was minor. It was like conflict is even too strong a word. It was more like we had a couple of things happen on on uh, my first two. One was, a, um, was an interesting thing where the editor added in just a little chunk. Um, it was probably about like, about 150 words kind of thing Um that was a great addition and was something that I had actually initially cut for length mm-hmm. Um and um, and so my feedback on it had been this is really great I'm glad you added this in I had this in there I had cut it for these reasons I have to go back and rework this though and he's like well what's the problem is it a, is it a theological thing is it and I'm like no 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 it's just it doesn't sound like me Mm-hmm. And so it's like – and he's like, ah, got it. OK, cool. And so so that was that was some of that kind of stuff that we had to work through there. But on another one – And that's one, a pretty
0: standard thing where – because a good editor will come back and say it would be beneficial if you added this. And then they'll give you sort of like a sample of like it could sound something like this. But usually they'll say – it put that in your own words. Yeah. Oh, totally. Because they they understand – a good editor understands the significance of voice and style because people aren't reading – a treatise on something by nobody. They're reading a book on something by this author, by Aaron, by somebody with a voice, a perspective, a style. Yep. And that's, you know, they don't want to be sort of, they don't want to disjointed.
1: Yeah. Um, I think the hardest one that I had was, and it was still helpful and necessary. I had to rewrite the back half of a book, whole back half. And the reason was, Because, um, as he was, as the editor was, was working through it, he, he felt like it was losing the plot Mm -hmm. a little bit. And he's like, this is all really good and all helpful and all necessary, but I'm, I'm struggling to, to make all the pieces fit here. So he's like, I think I need you to just redo it. And, and that hurt because then I was in a deadline crunch again. But because uh, I got it done early, and I had done it restfully and like in the margins. Goodness, and... you're so much more diligent than I am.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I well see, and the other thing is like the there's also a piece of. So I hear I often hear people who are who are writers, prospective writers, kind of talk about like the fear that they won't be able to do it. Like you said, sort of fear of failure, insecurity. Mm-hmm. After writing some, I just sort of ran out of that, mm-hmm. and I've learned that like oh, I just I know I can do it, yeah, like I just don't worry about getting the job done, mm-hmm. which also enables my procrastination to a degree, <laughs> but it also means like there i don't I don't worry about. I don't worry about being rushed because I don't think my quality of writing deteriorates by doing it in a kind of fast-focused way. Whereas – because some people feel like if they – you know, if they can be more leisurely, put more thought into it, craft it differently, I'm like, I don't think I craft anything differently. That's just a style thing. Sure. I don't – I think, in fact, in some ways I would write worse if I tried to do what you're describing.
1: Well, I mean, it so- what it sounds like is, is that um, – the longer you have the more you have the risk of overthinking how something is going to turn like how you would say something yeah um and and it's, i think i think that's a fair concern
0: yeah and I, I think the other aspect of it is there there's a there there're kind of two writing styles when it comes to revisions there's you sort of pour your slop out on paper and then you go back and fix it or you write it in such a manner the first time that you sometimes it's sort of revising as you go, mm-hmm. and a lot of people advise against that. I think that's a bad habit when you're writing fiction. Mm-hmm. My underst- I don't I don't write fiction, but my understanding is that revising as you go in fiction will just paralyze you, because there has to be sort of like you have to get the story from A to Z and then go back and fix how the story sounds. When you're writing nonfiction, so it's a it's a you're writing you're writing ideas. Like you already know the A to Z. And so then the whole writing process is how am I doing this? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and not sort of what is this thing? And so that's another piece of it is the I, – I tend to write that way. So there's a lot of just – and I outline everything by hand. Okay. So at any given time, I, I do not n- – no first kind of first draft goes onto a computer. Mm-hmm. The computer is where the product is created. Mm-hmm. The notebook is where, like, the materials are crafted. So that's the like, the scribbling in the margins. There's outlining. There's particular, you know, jotting down a particular phrase that I go, okay, I really that's that's a must. I like the way that sounds or whatever it is. Um, and it just sort of looks like the, the etchings of a madman. Yeah. But that enables me then when I sit down to type it out. I've already kind of cleaned up the mess. Mm-hmm. I've tightened up the ideas. I know where the paragraphs are going or the, the chapter is going. And that that for me is a, a key part of the process too because I hate editing on screen. Yeah. I just – like I don't mind going through and just hit accept. Like when an editor sends me stuff, my temptation is just hit it, accept all changes. Yeah. Like yes, just all of them, whatever. Because yeah. I don't like – computers are not a pleasant reading or creating experience for me. They're mm. purely utilitarian. So all of that happens in these notebooks that, you know, are then filled up with just gibberish. Yeah. And trashed.
1: Yeah. And see I have such a terrible case of left handed dude that I can't like I wouldn't I wouldn't even be able to make sense of my <laughs> of my chicken scratch. Um, like I'm waiting for, uh, an archeologist, a hundred years, 150,000 years from now to find, uh, find a journal of mine and be like, what was this? Yeah. <laughs> this just looks like scribbles.
0: Are you a perfectionist?
1: Um, I, I have a habit of being. Okay. See that I'm not. Yeah. And
0: that I have a really high standard for writing, Hmm. but I don't think in terms of perfectionism which means that when so that that means two things one it means that what i know that what i'm turning into an editor just needs work yeah i and i tell them that i'm like this was my best effort i'm counting on you to point out all the places i need to improve this yeah because i'm assuming that i need to yep and i could read it five more times and i don't know that i would see any of them but the other is that i don't assume that any of my books are kind of finished sure they're finished enough yeah and so there's a sense in which I think people want to have 100% satisfaction with their written work, and you just won't. You just come to the place where you're like, this was my best effort, my best contribution to – so I did a book on pastor's kid. I did a book on faith and doubt, book on curiosity. Like, Are any of those the definitive word on those things? No. My hope is that they are the right kind of contribution to connect with the right kind of reader – Mm-hmm. And that I didn't say anything terrible or stylistically just crappy. right. But I mean, that's that's kind of it. Yeah. And I think perfectionism is a it's a terrible bane for writers.
1: It, it definitely can be. I mean, for me, it is more, did I say it the way I wanted to say it? And yeah. that's the way. And um, I care a lot about, I don't know if it's if it's more than other people do but i care about i care about how a the rhythm of of my writing a lot like there's a and there is a a certain uh, almost a meter that um carries through a lot of a lot of my work mm-hmm. that is like it's it basically almost has a, has a sound to it yeah. um and that it's like i can tell right away when it's like someone doesn't get it um when they're when they're editing my work that it just doesn't it doesn't feel right yeah. in that way. And so I have to do a lot of work there. But for me, like I'm constantly mm-hmm. like I am, by the time it's, someone is seeing my first draft, it's probably my fifth or sixth and it is all done on the computer. Yeah, um, Doing um, outlining is actually really hard for me at times because um, I didn't really learn how to, do that well. Um, but I mean, I was the guy who would pull, you know, pull 2,500 word essays out of his rear end in, in college. Yeah. Um, the night, the, the day after it was due. So, um, I didn't,
0: yeah, I didn't outline, <laughs> um, I didn't outline well until I started writing the pastor's kid. And I realized like, this is people, people will say, Oh, it's ten chapters, it's like ten blog posts. Mm-hmm. Not if you want to write a good book. Nope they have to they have, they have to build on each other, refer back to each other. This has to be a single idea, um, or it's a collection of essays, which is a whole different style. Right. And and so I had to figure out how to outline and use my previous pieces of the outline. So I outline it chapter by chapter, and then go back and go, okay, I said this here. I don't need to say it again here. That's redundant. And my editor caught a couple of things mm-hmm. where they were like, you you use this exact same verse here. To say a related thing, I don't think you need it in both places. You know, and thank God for good editors who catch stuff like that. Or Mm -hmm. what you were describing with the voice, just stylistically, an editor who's not sitting down and going, "This is not proper English." Yeah. Yeah, because I'm like that. If everybody wrote everything properly, we would all sound the same and be boring. There has to be kind of the the unique writing flourish of a, of an author for it to, to matter.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. I appreciate, I appreciate editors who, who understand voice and tone. I have been, I have not, I've never been more frustrated than one editor who kept trying to change things that I did on purpose. Mm. You know, sort of the, you put together a longer complex compound sentence to express something and then you follow it up with like something short and punchy just again just to 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 alter the pace the rhythm so that it doesn't become droning or monotonous using one word sentences periodically but not like rob bell Mm -hmm. who writes 80 percent in three word sentences or less which is barely english yep um and they they just kept wanting to break up the compound sentences so they wanted every sentence to be like eight words instead of you know (sighs) Sixteen words, three words. Right. Twelve words, seven words. Where there's a there's a cadence and it and a yeah, you know, it sounds like a person talking. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was just one of those things. where I'm like, even they haven't read William Zinser apparently because even Zinser talks about like, isn't this more enjoyable to the ear of the reader than this? Yeah. I right, one last question. Right, I know we yep. got to go. Yep. What are your thoughts on the advice? Write like you speak.
1: Generally, there is the short version is I don't think it's helpful because speaking. Um, if you write the way you speak, in a certain sense, um, so here's what. Let me back that up. There's a sense in which yes, you should write like you speak. In that your your spoken your spoken voice and your written voice should line up. So. What you read should sound should have a have the same kind of feel as listening to listening to the person, Mm -hmm. but it is not terribly wise to say just blanket write like you speak because if you wrote exactly the way you speak, it would read like anything by any any David Mamet play. Well,
0: I think there's just it. I think when people say that, what they're trying to do is help people to not feel the read to write formally. Mm-hmm. So they they they're they're juxtaposing formal versus spoken or verbal. Sure, those are not the juxtapositions. Formal no. is a writing style, but the juxtaposition is ear of the reader versus ear of the listener.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We have a pretty conversational tone on this podcast generally if you sat down and um, wrote out this podcast, if a listener did, like we're going to transcribe this, it would read like gibberish. Even the paragraph that you just spoke about answering that question, you interrupted yourself twice. There was ums and ahs, Mm -hmm. all of which sounds incredibly normal. Yes. Nobody was lost by what you were saying. Nobody was having trouble following, doesn't read well. And that's where when you're writing, you can be more complex. You can be more, you can ask more of the reader's ear because people are processing it more slowly, they're engaging the written word, they can go back and reread. You, mm-hmm. you should assume that a person who is reading what you write is smarter than a person who is listening to what you say.
1: I think that's fair. Yeah. Or
0: that they have the capacity to understand more in the written word. I. My short answer is I hate that advice. I think right. it's I think it's a big reason we have so many just trite, chintzy, sloppy, especially in the Christian world books, that it's a lot of cutesy jokes. Like humor, written humor does not play like spoken humor at all. No. And when you try to write the same way in both cases, you end up with a book like Amy Poehler's Yes Please, which I put down after two chapters, as previously discussed on this podcast, because it was so bad. Even though she's a brilliant writer for on screen, right? So all of that is like you there. I freeing up listeners who are writing don't feel the need to do that. R- find your writing voice, right, and have a
1: speaking voice, and learn how to write funny.
0: Yeah. I mean, if, if humor is you your thing, if,
1: but I mean, here's to, to jump on that. I know this is a little bit of a side note, but one of the things I think we need to be really careful of is just the use of humor in general in our writing. Yeah. Um, humor can be a crutch for insecurity. Mm-hmm. And, um, so it's, I'm just going to deflect with this, this funny statement here yeah. and it just doesn't play because it doesn't fit. And it's super obvious to everybody. Um, don't write for the quip, Write for, write for the, write for the point that you're trying to yeah. make. If um, you're a
0: funny person, it comes through. Like if you yeah. just, if you have a sense of humor, if you, if you have a knack for similes or metaphors that kind of strike people in a funny way, like that comes through. You don't need to. My least favorite types of humor, especially in the Christian book world are like the, it it's usually like a megachurch pastor, occasionally uh-huh. a youth pastor, trying to write. And they every chapter starts with a story. Uh-huh. You, have to, you have to be relatable. Uh-huh. False. Don't start every chapter with a story. That's formulaic <laughs> and bad writing. Um, and and they start giving a description of somebody, and everybody is like, they're compared to a pop culture, you know. Christina Aguilera like voice or Steven Urkel like pants and glasses or like there's just those kinds of things and you're like if I was your editor I would just like cut that page out mm-hmm. and be like oh and now we're good because we got to the point mm-hmm. so yeah, humor has to be humor is like any spice you use too much of it you ruin things you don't use any of it it tastes bland mm-hmm. you use the right amount of it and you kind of bring out bring out more flavors
1: Cool. Barnabas, I think that's a good place for us to wrap up this episode. Um, yeah, guys, thanks for listening, uh, for joining us on this Q&A on the writer's pretentious process. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so leave uh, leave your five-star rating and review on iTunes. Help us get to 100. We've gotten a little bit closer. Um, and uh, we'll catch you later. Bye.